Remain standing for our gospel lesson and sermon text from the end of John 19. Give your ear to God's gospel. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you. And may your spirit, the spirit who inspired these words... Work them into our hearts so that they are planted there and then bear fruit in our lives in the coming week. We ask for this humbly and fervently in the name of King Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. What is your only comfort? in life, and in death? Well, if you want to find out the answer to that question, then come next week to the adult Sunday school class and to the youth Sunday school class, both the youth, the 13 to 17 or 18-year-old class, and then the adult, 18 and up class, will be going through the Heidelberg Catechism, which is one of the Reformation documents that we subscribe to here at the church, uh, that we submit to the Word of God, but that we subscribe to in good faith. We're going to be studying that for about a year, and so the first question in that Heidelberg Catechism is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And so I encourage you, as Bobby announced the, the Sunday School program that we're kicking off next Sunday, I encourage you to commit to that and be a part of it. It'll be a good time of studying the Word of God and fellowship with your fellow believers in Christ. I thought about titling today's sermon, Secret Followers of Christ Finally Confess Their Faith. The last five verses of John 19 are about two secret disciples of Christ. But this isn't the first time we've, we've come across this idea of secret discipleship, the secret believers. John told us back in chapter 12 that many believed in Jesus secretly. John 
12, 42 and 43 say, even many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So John doesn't name any of those secret believers in John 12, but here at the end of John 19 in our passage today, we discover who two of them were, at least. One was Joseph of Arimathea, and the other was Nicodemus. And we don't know much about either of these two men, uh, but, we, but what we do know from the Gospels is quite significant. We know that each was rich, each was prominent in Israel, each was a member of the council or the Sanhedrin, so each one had clout, each one lived and moved in Jerusalem, they were movers and shakers there. Nicodemus is described in John 3 as, by Jesus as the teacher of Israel. Joseph of Arimathea is described in Mark 15 as a prominent or respected member of the council. So both of these guys were higher-ups in Israel. They were religious leaders. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Nicodemus had confessed, remember back in John 3, Nicodemus had confessed that Jesus was a teacher come from God. But fear had kept Nicodemus from coming to Jesus openly during the day, in the light of day. He came at night, remember. And John 7 even says that he came at night because he was one of them, one of the Pharisees, and not yet a true disciple of Jesus. Nicodemus's fear also kept him from openly following Jesus during his earthly ministry. Joseph of Arimathea was in a similar boat. On the one hand, Luke 23 describes him as a, a good and righteous man who was looking for the kingdom of God, it says. It even says that he didn't consent, he didn't agree to the crucifixion of Jesus. On the other hand, it appears that Joseph of Arimathea it appears that his protests against the unjust crucifixion of Jesus were silent protests. John 19.38, the first verse of today's passage, gives us the, the other side of Joseph. It says, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. So all the way up to the crucifixion, to, to the point of the crucifixion of Jesus, these two men believed, but they believed in secret. They remained secret disciples. It, that, that's, that seems like a, an oxymoron, right? If you're a disciple of Jesus, you can't really do it in secret. And so there's an irony here in the way John puts this. He's a disciple of Jesus, but in secret. Not really possible, but that's what he was trying to do. That's what they were trying to do, these two men. Because they feared man. And because they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. 
the, the story of these two men, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, is, is relevant in every age of the church because at every point along the way, Christ's church, Christ's body, contains secret disciples, believers in Jesus who are afraid to let their faith be known to the world, to their friends, to their circles. And so we need to ask as we're reading this, have, have we ever acted like Nicodemus? Have you ever acted like Joseph of Arimathea? We, we do act like them. We, we we find it all too easy to rationalize our failures to speak up about Jesus in certain circumstances, in certain contexts. We tell ourselves, well, I, I don't want to offend unnecessarily. The time's not right. I'm going, I'm going to wait for the right time. I'll say something when I have a better relationship with that person. God regularly gives us golden opportunities to stand up for what is right, to speak up against what is wrong? He gives you opportunities to let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and then in response glorify your Father in heaven. And when, when God provides these opportunities, how do you respond? Is your tendency to remain a secret disciple? Are you a secret believer at work or with your friends? your old friends that you went to school with, or with certain family members, or with the neighbor across the street. There's no mystery about what kept Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus from confessing Jesus openly, publicly. They feared man, and they loved the glory that comes from man. And this same temptation rushes through our veins as well. Even if it looks different on the ground, even if the particulars are different in the way it's fleshed out, we still seek to be well thought of by others. Our fear of God is too easily eclipsed by our fear of other humans. On the other side of the coin, the praise of other humans, the the accolades of our friends and our colleagues often mean more to us than what God thinks about us. The one who sees every single thing that we do all the time. So if you struggle to let your light shine before men, if you tend to become an incognito Christian in certain situations, and you know which ones they are, if you believe in Jesus, but sometimes secretly for fear of man, if you you desperately love the affirmation, the praise of other people, then know that your temptation is not unique and it's not new. The two men in our passage dealt with these same temptations in their own century in their own country, in their own context. But they also overcame these temptations by the power of God and became public confessors, public believers. God transformed them from secret believers 
and to unashamed confessors of Jesus Christ, their Lord. We see this transformation take place in the case of Joseph of Arimathea within verse 38. We we see it before our eyes as we read it. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, that's the first half of the verse, What's he do? What, well, the second half of the verse has the verb. Asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. So, so did you see that transformation take place? Right there in the middle of the verse. In the first part of the verse, jo- Joseph is being a secret disciple of Jesus. That's how he's described He's fearing the Jews. But then suddenly this man who was once fearful of other men asks Pontius Pilate, the governor, if he can have the body of Jesus. Very public sort of thing to do. Then this same man who used to keep his faith in Jesus private publicly takes the body of Jesus to his own garden tomb. Joseph's bold action here no doubt would have made him a pariah, an outcast in the eyes of many of his fellow council members, religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. It was doubly courageous since Jesus was charged with being a, a rabble-rouser, you know, a rebel, uh, and a blasphemer. That's why he was hanged on a cross, that he was a disturber of the peace. He was an enemy of the state, an enemy of Israel. So by these actions, Joseph of Arimathea reverses what is known about him. He reverses his testimony, if you will. He's no longer a coward. Now he's got courage to stand before Pilate as a follower of Jesus. Now he's got the courage to openly associate himself with the body of a highly politicized criminal, Jesus. Now finally, at the death of his Savior, Joseph of Arimathea is publicly confessing his faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 39. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. So Joseph of Arimathea isn't alone. Nicodemus has, has joined him. And these, these two rich guys, by the way, fulfill, uh, you know, burying Jesus, they fulfill Isaiah 53, verse 9, which says he would be with the rich in his death. And John reminds us that Nicodemus was, was the one who originally came to Jesus when? During the day? No, at night. That's very important. Every time, in fact, the Gospel of John mentions Nicodemus, whether in John 3, John 7, or here in John 19, every time it reminds the reader that Nicodemus came at night, in secrecy, in the cover of darkness, The point John's making here is that Nicodemus, like Joseph of Arimathea, was fearful. 
He feared man and wanted their praise. Even as the teacher of Israel, he worried about what his fellow Israelites would think of him if he followed Jesus openly in the light of day. But not anymore. By God's grace, the death of Christ caused Nicodemus to respond to Christ with public faith. Here, Nicodemus is stepping out into the light. He's he's stepping out of the darkness and emerging into the light. No longer is he ashamed to be called a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 38, we witnessed the conversion of Joseph. Now in verse 39, we witness the conversion of Nicodemus. He is transformed before our eyes, our eyes. And yet, at the same time, the conversion of Nicodemus isn't the main story here. It's not the main event, the main thing that John is telling us or wanting us to think about and meditate on. John's main concern is the gospel message that Jesus offered to Nicodemus at the beginning of his ministry back in John chapter 3. In that nighttime encounter, Jesus told Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. A little later, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus now believes these words. He now believes the good news, the gospel. The death of Christ converted him. God converted him through the death of Jesus. It says that Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes to offset the unpleasant odor. The Egyptians embalmed their, their bodies, you know, the way we do it. They took out the organs and... But the Jews just, they didn't do that. They just covered the outside of the body with spices. And that's what they're bringing these, these spices for, to cover the inevitable unpleasant odor. Now, what's noteworthy, noteworthy is how much of this mixture Nicodemus brought. The, the New King James Version says about 100 pounds, so roughly 100 pounds. Now, the, the Greek word for pound here is litra, which is about two-thirds of, of a pound, or our pound. So the actual weight was around 65 or 70 of our pounds. But either way, it's a lot. In fact, it's so much that some commentators assume that John must have been mistaken. This is too much. Perhaps he's just exaggerating for effect about the myrrh and the aloes, how much there were. I mean, after all, you know, 68, 70 pounds of spices would have been a lot for, for one man to carry. 
But remember, Nicodemus was wealthy, and he no doubt had servants. And the implication in this whole narrative is that two wealthy men used their servants to to do all these things, to help carry the spices, to help take down the body of Jesus from the cross and to carry him to the nearby tomb and, and then to help prepare the body for burial. Who, who knows how many servants helped do these things. Let's think about the amount of spices Nicodemus brings. Back in John 12, Martha's sister Mary, she used one pound, one litra of perfume to anoint the feet of Jesus. You remember that, that scene. And Judas Iscariot, you also remember, uh, he pointed out how wasteful this was. This, this was a ridiculously lavish amount of perfume to be used all at once. You know, you know we could sell it. Maybe just sell half of it, right? Now Nicodemus is anointing Jesus with 100 times as much spices. Mary had one litra. Nicodemus brings 100 litras. If Mary brought about a year's wages of perfume, as John 12 indicates, then it appears that Nicodemus brought over a lifetime of wages to anoint the body of his crucified Lord. Is Jesus that worth that much to you? Is he worth a lifetime of earnings? A better question is this. Are you willing to give the value of your working life as a gift to your Lord? When Paul says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, Bobby quoted that verse before the service. When Paul says that, he's calling you to give your entire selves, your time, your money, your home, your career, your schedule, your ambitions, your talents, your relationships, your friendships, your romantic relationships, your heart, your mind, your body, your soul. He's calling you to give everything That's what your body represents. Everything about you. Everything you have as an offering to God. Are you willing to do that? Nicodemus' 100 litros of myrrh and aloes was, was more than just a sentimental gift to a dead Messiah, Rabbi, Lord. It represented the kind of giving that is expected of all Christians, of all of us who follow the the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ gave his life for you. Will you give your life back to him? Let's reread the final three verses of John 19. Look with me at verse 40. 
Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid, had yet been laid. So there, so there they laid Jesus because of the Jewish preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. A quick note on the preparate Jewish preparation day. As I've noted before, that just means Friday. It's the day that the Jews prepared for the Sabbath, which was Saturday, and it actually began Friday night at sunset. So they called Friday the day of preparation. And they wanted to get this done before the Sabbath began. Now, in, in those verses I read, John is, is not, he's not only concerned about the fact, the historical fact of Jesus' burial. That, that's a given. It's true. It happened. And he is telling us that. He's also concerned, though, with the place. The place is, is a quote from the passage. And John is careful to give us two important qualifications about the place. First, the first qualification at the beginning of verse 41 is that John explains it this way. In the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. One of the most important phrases in our passage today. There was a garden. So this, this statement situates the, the crucifixion and burial of Jesus in a garden. You'll remember that Jesus was arrested in a garden in John 18. And now in chapter 19, he's crucified and buried in a garden. And in chapter 20, he'll rise from the dead in that garden in which he was buried. And we've noticed many times before uh, that in, in John's gospel, he, he applies a Genesis lens to the story that he's telling. And, and so at this point, it's, it's second nature for us to see the connection between this garden and all the gardens in John 18, 19, and 20, to see the connection between those gardens and the garden, the first garden, and Genesis 2, the Garden of Eden. So the first qualification of, uh, more on that later. So the first qualification of the place of Christ's crucifixion and burial is that there was a garden there. The second qualification in verse 41 is that in this garden there was a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. This detail highlights the royalty of Jesus, the royalty of King Jesus. You may have noticed that I ended my prayer before the sermon in the name of King Jesus to prepare us for one of the major themes in this text. Like a king, Jesus is buried in a garden. The background here, more, more than one biblical scholar has pointed out that in the Old Testament and in ancient 
literature outside the Old Testament, there's a connection, an explicit connection in many places between gardens and kings. And so John carefully and intentionally refers to a, play, a, a, refers to a garden as the place of Jesus' burial. And, and in, in so doing, in making this connection, he makes a, a very important symbolic point, theological point. The tomb of Jesus, like the tomb of David, like the tomb of, of many of David's uh, descendants, Davidic kings, the tomb of Jesus is also located in a garden. And so like a Davidic king, Jesus is buried in a garden tomb and his body is lavished with spices the, the amount of spices that you would lavish on a king. So the point John's making is that Jesus is the legitimate heir of David. He is the true Messiah of Israel. He's got a rightful claim to the eternal throne of David. And we'll see in the coming weeks that this, this royal garden theme is made even clearer in the context of the resurrection account in John 20. But there's one more detail here in verse 41 about this tomb. Jesus was no traditional king. He was unique. The tomb reserved for him was an unused tomb. No one had ever been buried there. And this detail declares the uniqueness of the person being buried in the tomb. Actually, the presence of Jesus in this brand new garden tomb is is doubly unique. Why? Because it was not only the tomb for God himself, it was also the first tomb in human history that was only needed for three days. King Jesus was the first person to walk out of a tomb in his own power. He was the first person ever to walk out of a tomb in his own power in his new creation resurrected body. So this particular tomb was unique because it was transformed into a womb. It became the place where the dead body of Jesus took on resurrection life. This tomb was the womb of the new creation, of which Jesus is the first fruits. So the death of Jesus is the means of life for the world. The tomb of Jesus is the place where resurrection life, eternal life, is born. It's where the corpse of Christ took on resurrection life as the first fruits of the new heavens and new earth. In this new life-giving garden, in this new garden of Eden, the tree of life is the tree on which Christ died. The new Adam in this new garden is Christ himself. The new Eve 
is the church, the bride of Christ, which is formed out of the water and blood running out of his rib. Just as Adam was put into a a death-like sleep in order to bring life, new life, into the world, so also Christ was put to death, real death, in order to bring everlasting life into this world and into the world to come. The paradox of the Christian faith is the paradox that took place in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. The paradox is this. The death of Jesus Christ is the source of all life. Death is the source of life. That's the paradox of the gospel. The death of Jesus is the source of resurrection life. And this is also true in a different sense, a derivative sense, of your death to yourself. Your death is the source of life. Your death to self produces living fruit. Jesus put it this way back in John 12, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It'll bear much fruit. Are you willing to fall into the earth and die? When Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus witnessed the death of Jesus, God did a work in them through that event. God did a work in them, and they became willing and ready to fall into the earth and die. They weren't willing and ready before. God worked a miracle. God worked the new birth in them through the death, through the cross, so that they were ready and willing to fall into the ground and die. They died to their fear of man. They died to the praise, their their love for the praise of men. And they began loving the glory that comes from God more than the glory that comes from their fellow man. man. We don't know anything else about these two guys. But we do know that their their death to themselves bore much fruit. However long they lived. What is keeping you from falling into the earth and dying? What areas, areas of your life are you unwilling to give to Jesus? What is, different way of asking the same question, what is worth more, than, more to you than Christ and his cross? What's, what's holding you back from being a more sold out disciple of Jesus? Are there times during your week when you function more like a secret disciple than a public one? If so, what's keeping you from making known to your friends, to your cousins, to your co-workers, to your next-door neighbor, to your closest family members, your faith 
in your Lord and Savior. Your, our rationalizations abound. They, some may sound like this. Well, my testimony wouldn't really be all that effective anyway. I don't have much to offer. That's not my thing. After all, what matters is that I am a child of God, and I can be that without having to let the whole world know about it. Can you? Can we? Not so sure. Let, remind, let me remind you of what Scripture says. If anyone comes after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's inherently public. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 27. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Romans 10, 9 and 10. And here's a scary one for secret disciples. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will also disown him before my Father in heaven. Matthew 10, 32 and 33. If you're born again from above, if, if, if you've been born of water and the Spirit, if you've been united to Jesus by the power of the Spirit working in you, then the Spirit inside you will drive you, push you, lead you to confess Christ openly and to take up your cross publicly. You'll have in you, because you have the Spirit in you, a growing desire to step out of the darkness, as Nicodemus did, out of the night, out of secrecy, as Joseph of Arimathea did, and let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and then glorify your Father who is in heaven. Like Joseph and Nicodemus, you'll begin fearing God more than man. And you'll love the praise of God, the glory of God, the glory that God gives more than the glory of man. You'll give your entire life to the service of God. And you'll do all of this because Jesus is worth it to you. Let's pray. Father, please cultivate in us a growing desire to live before you and to honor you and to love the glory that you give more than we live before man more than we love the glory that man gives. And we confess that we fall short in this and that we need your help. We need your spirit working this in us, producing this in us. And we ask for it in the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake. Amen.